There we go. All right. Well, let's uh, go ahead and get started. I know people are still sitting and everything, but we want to have enough time. So, give you one. One second there. All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that you woke us up this morning. I thank you, Lord, that we have breath, that we have life, and that we can, uh, that we can be thankful to you. God, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's hard to find things to be thankful for. Sometimes in our lives we, uh, we feel like there's darkness all around and, and not even a pinprick of light. But God, I pray that you would teach us to learn to trust in you nonetheless. Um, I thank you that you've given us your word to teach us, to, to give us examples, um, to give us encouragement, and also that you've given us your church to encourage us and teach us as well. Uh, so I pray today that, that we would, uh, as we look at the idea of trusting, that we would learn something, uh, especially me and uh, Pray this in, in your name. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Good to see so many of you here this morning. Um, I want to go and get started. So let's see where we are today. Uh, the, the last six weeks of this class, we are talking about different strategies for connecting with God, uh, strategies that Christians use to connect with God while we suffer. And I think we're starting to see that they're actually just strategies to connect with God all the time. But when we continue to use these same strategies in times of trial, we realize that the God that seems distant is actually near. Two weeks ago, we discussed the, uh, the biblical metaphor of walking. Saw that God walks with us in our suffering. But we also saw that we do indeed need to keep walking ourselves. So we need to keep doing those steady, repeated actions that can be sustained no matter what. To, to walk with God is a metaphor that symbolizes slow and steady progress. Uh, we talked about 1 Peter two weeks ago. And in 1 Peter 4.19, it says that when we suffer, we should commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. That's assuming we've been doing those things all along and there's something to continue. We need to keep doing the things we were doing when times were better. So we pray, we sing the Psalms. We read scripture. We worship with God's people, as we will do today. Um, we stay committed to and fully invested in the life of the church. And we practice obedience. The same obedience we practice, hopefully, when, when times are good. We practice in, in times of, of difficulty. So these are part of the Christian life, no matter what. No matter what's going on in our lives. And uh, then, then we gave some focus in the class to the idea of singing the Psalms as a beneficial everyday practice. And I said that I would provide some resources uh, to help with that. So I've got some printouts that you could pick up on your way out. These are, it's not an exhaustive list, but just some things I put together to try to help you uh, in your daily life be able to have Psalms that you can sing. Things that, that are easier perhaps than just going through the hymnal. But I've also provided some resources for that. Uh, better than the printout, though. I've got it online, and you can click through 
to any of the songs, uh, any of the resources that I've got there. So uh, if you see, my email is on the paper too. So if you would like a, I guess the link to the online printout or the online page, or if you'd like the page itself, I'll send it to you. Um, let's see. And then last week, Johnny spoke about weeping in our suffering and how it's actually an important part of our connecting with God. He had time to talk about Haman, and I, I can't remember whether you got into Job or, or, or where we got, uh, got to, but please, if you get the chance, take a look at, at the handout, and you can see that online as well. There's so much more good teaching there as we look at the tears of Job, Elijah, and Jesus. Um, and also, I posted something that Johnny put together online. It's 122 scriptures with their references that mention people weeping, crying, or wailing in the Bible. Uh, and if you read through them and look into the individual passages, you'll start to get a much more full picture of what an important place tears have in God's Word. Johnny said it's important that we really learn to lament what is wrong in our world and in our lives, and we shouldn't shy away from grieving when things are worth grieving. Think about the loss of a child or a friend with an incurable cancer. We have unspeakable violence in our world. You know, these things should be grieved. And if they don't grieve us, we're either foolishly acting stoic and and thinking it will protect us, or maybe our hearts have become hard and lack compassion. But these things should grieve us. So it's proper to grieve, to lament in handling suffering. But it's intensely important to look also at the call to trust God in our suffering nonetheless. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the idea of trusting. Tim Keller says, Some Christian writers point emphatically to the complaints of Job, the criticisms criticisms of Jeremiah and the Psalms of Lamentation as the right way for believers to process their pain. Other writers of a more conservative and traditional temper argue from other passages in the Bible that we must always trust God's unfathomable wisdom and sovereignty. The fact is that both sets of texts are in the Bible, and they're both important. I think that's something that Keller comes to a lot, the balance of not pitting one text against another, finding the strength in both. And uh, he says we should not interpret one group in such a way that it contradicts or weakens the claims and assertions of the other. Then he goes on, and I've got this on your page there, to say, Trusting in the Lord in all things is a difficult assignment. Would you say that's true in your lives? (laughs) Certainly has been in mine. Thankfully, though, the Bible does not help us do that only with commands and directives. And this is my favorite part. It also gives us stories. How important are stories to us in our lives? Stories affect us more, I think, than just do this, don't do that. Right? How do we teach our kids best? I think we teach them through stories. I think as adults, we're taught that way as well. So there are not a lot of better stories about trusting God in all things than the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. I'm sure it's a story that you've heard a hundred times or more, but I really want to take a good look at it today and see what it has to tell us about trusting. So, We'll see that Joseph trusted God even while his entire life was completely crashing in around him. 
you probably don't actually want to look at your page during this whole time because it's not going to be that helpful. <laughs> when you go home, if you want to think about the story more, it's, it's a good kind of bullet point through the story. Um, but, but let's just go through the story a little bit. So at the beginning, <clears throat> we have a 17-year-old Joseph. He's just a kid. He was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons, but he's the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife. Anyone know that favorite wife? Rachel. Rachel. Yeah. And Rachel had died. So, so Joseph has a very special place in Jacob's heart. Um, he was his favorite, and not only that, all of his brothers knew it. That's the worst place to be in. <laughs> to be the favorite and for everyone to know it. Feels like the best place at times, but it really was a bad spot. So we see an example of how Jacob loves Joseph and he gives this ornate expensive gift to him. What was that gift? A robe. This this uh you know, this is the the thing that we think of as as a kid in the story it's you know, Joseph in the coat of many colors or the robe of many colors. And and for me it kind of just stopped with that. That was kind of the story. I didn't realize how much more there was. Um so he treated him as this special favorite son. He gave him things. He he uh he had special privileges. And, uh, and again, his brothers really hated him. In Genesis 37, 2, it says that he would give bad reports of his brothers to Jacob. So basically, he liked to tattle on them. <laughs> that doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> now, Joseph had two very vivid dreams uh, in Genesis 37, each of which meant that his brothers would eventually bow down to and serve him. And I want to just read a few verses from that right now so we can get the picture of this. It says in Genesis 37, 5 through 11, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose, arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. We hear it again there. Hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. <laughs> they were looking forward to this. <laughs> he said, Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now you can tell, by the way, <clears throat> that Joseph eagerly shares these dreams. He's become a very arrogant uh, young man with a growing sense of his own superiority. Right? It, it, they don't just hate him for the dreams. They hate him for the words. Because he, he feels it's important to share this with them. Um, he's kind of puffed up and proud about it. So <clears throat> the relationship between Jacob and Joseph and Joseph's view of himself began to create a real toxicity within the family. Um, it, it was just a family filled with hatred. Joseph somehow, though, seemed to be blind to it. 
And soon a a string of really terrible things started to happen in his life. And it starts with this. Jacob sent Joseph uh, out to give report on his brothers as he would regularly. Uh, They were tending the flocks in a remote place. And his brothers weren't there when he got there. And and we'll begin to see that his brothers had a, a plan to deal with their hatred. They had moved on actually to a, uh, a an even more remote place. Um, and I'm losing the name of the place right now. I've got it somewhere there. Um, when, when Joseph showed up where, where his brother should have been, there was a stranger there. And the stranger said he had overheard where the brothers had gone. So he went on to that place instead. And in this even more remote place, his brothers took him. Uh, knowing that they wouldn't be found out because they were so far away, took him and threw him in a in a pit in a cistern, um, an empty one, <laughs> and uh, they left him there as they debated what they should do with him. Some of them wanted to kill him. Some some of them said we should sell him into slavery, um, and I believe it was Reuben who was away for uh, a period. Uh, He actually would have been a defender of Joseph, at least to an extent. While he was away for a little bit, they went ahead and just sold him into slavery. And uh, Joseph was bound and taken to Egypt, where he became a house slave in the house of Potiphar. And who was Potiphar? He was an officer of Pharaoh. He was an important man. He was the captain of the guard. So Joseph, you see, he's come from being the favorite son the most loved son by his father, treated well, all of a sudden he realizes he's hated, he's been sold into slavery, he's in a far-off land. Um, Everything is starting to crash in around him. Now, Joseph decided, though, not just to completely crumble, he decided to work really hard. Joseph worked hard hoping to please his master and to improve his circumstances. He said, this is all I can do is just try to make it better. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and caused all that he did to succeed. And this is a pattern that we're going to start seeing with Joseph, that God is always with him, always causing what he does to succeed. So what did he do? He made him overseer of his house and over all that he had. And Potiphar's house was blessed. Why? For Joseph's sake. So this this Egyptian... uh, Important Egyptian man, his house is being blessed for the sake of his slave. Now, this is where it gets really tricky, (laughs) really, uh, really bad for him. Joseph was a handsome man, and Potiphar's wife unfortunately fell in love with Joseph. She began making advances on him, and he would remind her that his master had given him charge over everything that he had except one thing. That would be his wife. That's the only thing he held back from him. We could look at that as kind of the forbidden fruit. It reminds me a lot of of God in, in, in the garden. He gave man dominion over everything but one thing. The one fruit that he held back for good reason. And so Joseph spurned many advances from Potiphar's wife. And in her anger and frustration at his rejection, she took advantage of a situation and she falsely accused him of making an advance on her. 
What happened? He was thrown in prison. And he had no hope of ever emerging. Why would he? There, there's nothing you can do to fix that situation. <clears throat> so then the story advances. While in, in prison, Joseph met a man. He was Pharaoh's cupbearer. Okay? And the cupbearer had, had a falling out with uh, Pharaoh. Also the baker had. Um, these two men. They'd been thrown into prison. Now these two men had dreams and didn't know how to interpret them. And Joseph said, well, let me help you. And Joseph knew that he had the Spirit of God to help him interpret these men's dreams. The interpretations were very different for the two men. For the baker, he said, Pharaoh's going to have your head. <laughs> You're going to die. He's, he's not going to ever be pleased with you. And with the cupbearer, he said, after three days, Pharaoh will allow you to come out of prison, come be his, his cupbearer again. Um, so he told these men the interpretations of the dreams, and sure enough, they were exactly true. So Joseph had proven his value, but he had also proven the value of God and the Spirit of God working in him to these men, especially to the cupbearer. <laughs> um, now, when the cupbearer was leaving the prison, Joseph said, remember me. Please remember me in what I've done for you. And say a kind word to Pharaoh for me, please. Remember, I'm a man who was stolen out of my homeland, taken from my people, and I've also been falsely imprisoned. Please remember my plight and remember what I've done for you. So what happens? We see a moment here where it seems like God gets even more silent. He's just done this good work uh, through Joseph and he has an opportunity with someone in a high place. And he says, remember me. He sits in prison for two more years, completely forgotten. How would you feel in that moment, sitting falsely accused in prison for two more years? And that's something I think we sometimes don't get from these stories is how long some of these things happen. This story is, is over a good 20-year period, uh, all the things that happened with Joseph. This is not a... Um, well, something bad happened, and then it got a little better and a little better and a little better, and within a month I was feeling good again because God had fixed everything for me. This is the bulk of this man's, uh, you know, his, his beginning of his adult life was marred by th these tragedies happening, um, and yet he continued to trust in God. <clears throat> so two years later, when Pharaoh... Uh, and he's actually about 30 years old now. When, when Pharaoh had two puzzling dreams, the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And he brought him into the palace. And God helped Joseph again as he showed Pharaoh the meaning of his dreams. Now, there were warnings from God about a coming seven years of famine that would be of unprecedented severity. In addition, Joseph outlined a plan of public policies that would not only prepare and save Egypt from starvation, but... And I'm sure Pharaoh loved this. It would also increase Egypt's power and influence throughout that part of the world. So this is what God gave Joseph to share with Pharaoh. And of course, the dream that God gave to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh immediately recognized Joseph's brilliance and the divine spirit that was with him. And that's something that's amazing to, to think. I think if, obviously, they had more 
more, uh, they put more weight in the interpretation of dreams than we do. Uh, but to see this foreign man interpret your dream and immediately know that whoever this God is that is helping him is right. You see, obviously, the working of God in Pharaoh to understand that. Yes, Bill. That compare is also interesting. Pharaoh had related his dreams to, to various... Yes. They couldn't interpret it. And, and the cupbearer mm-hmm. heard a little bit about his dream. And he confessed to Pharaoh, today I remember my deficiencies. He recalled this guy mm-hmm. who had, could interpret his dream. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing is that Joseph confidently interpreted the dream. He had confidence because of the spirit within him. And that, for whatever reason, translated in Pharaoh's mind to the truth. Um, So what happened? Pharaoh promoted Joseph to a high government position. He gave him authority to carry out the program that he had outlined. He gave him authority to do God's work. Joseph used his new power to set up a massive hunger relief program that kept everyone in the country, (laughs) that's what it is, (laughs) kept everyone in the country alive during the years of famine. And Egypt also, as he said said they would, gained influence as people from all over the region began coming to Egypt for food. Egypt had become the salvation of the people around. They would not have lived apart from Egypt's good work. It's really interesting when I look at the language of this section, how much it reminds me Uh, and this is in Genesis 41, um, reminds me of Jacob's relationship to Joseph. Because Pharaoh kind of treated Joseph like a favorite son. Um, I don't know what the age was there, but the the treatment is what I'm really talking about. He took his signet ring and put it on Joseph's finger. He placed fine clothes and jewelry on him. This really harkens back to uh, the way that Jacob treated Joseph in the first. Um, He had him ride in his second chariot. He gave him a wife, and he gave him important responsibilities. These are all very fatherly things to do, the kinds of things that a good son might receive. It's truly an unexpected turn of events in Joseph's life. This is where Joseph starts to see things turning around. But the funny thing is that God knows Joseph's life and the life of his family needed to be turned around from the start. So while Joseph might see this as the turning point, God really started turning things in the direction of healing from the first moment of Joseph's suffering. Now, let's move on with the story because this is where it gets really good. One day, two years into the famine, ten Hebrew men appear at Joseph's door. They were eager to purchase grain to keep their families alive. Of course, we know these are Joseph's brothers, um, ten of them at least. And... Just like Joseph's dreams, his brothers came and bowed down to him, since he was now the governor of all of Egypt. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And, you know, if you think about it, he was a teenager the last time they saw him. Uh, Now he's all grown up, and he's dressed as a royal Egyptian, basically. So here's where I'm not going to go into every single event of this part of the story, because we would be here for two hours. Um, It's a very long story. There's a lot of back and forth. But I want to get the basic points. So Joseph decides to hide his identity at this point. Then over the course of several meetings with his brothers, he tested them. First, he wines and dines them. (laughs) And uh, then he threatens and scares them. 
And he has this kind of back and forth. Uh, Kidner talks about the sun and frost back and forth and the way that it affects your heart. Um, and I think we see this a little bit from God at times um, in the circumstances of our lives and how they affect our hearts, soften our hearts, um, and change us um, in the right direction. So he accuses his brothers of being spies. Of course, he knows none of this is true, but, which they deny. But he keeps one of them in custody as a guarantee for their sincerity. All of the things that Joseph is doing remind the brothers clearly of their former sins. Joseph continues to arrange everything so that the brothers are forced to relive their past. Now Joseph makes his final move. He insists that they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, their father's new favorite, as the only remaining child of Rachel to Egypt. If they want any more food, he knew how much, how hard this would be for them, for one thing, because... uh, Jacob would not easily agree to it. Nearly kills Jacob to send him, but after a lot of back and forth, ultimately he agrees. So they return to Egypt with Benjamin. But Joseph arranges it so that Benjamin appears to have stolen a valuable cup. He puts the cup in his bag and then, you know, calls him out and says, one of you stolen my cup. And he tells the brothers that they can go home free if they just let him keep Benjamin as a slave for punishment. He sets it up so that the brothers have every opportunity to do to Benjamin what they had done to him, to Joseph. He gives the opportunity to once again rid themselves of their father's favorite and sacrifice him for their own convenience. Now, one of the brothers, Judah, there's so much story here if we had time to go into it to think about Judah and Benjamin, but one of the brothers, Judah, who had taken the lead in selling Joseph, into slavery, steps forward and offers himself in Benjamin's place. This is where Joseph can't control himself any longer. And he just bursts into tears and he tells him, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. And of course, that, they're shocked. It's, it's not easy to, to grasp that. He says, I'm the one that, that you sold into Egypt. <laughs> he reminds them even now. But, um, but then he says, Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Why? Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. He knew you were coming here. He sent me ahead. (laughs) He knew you were going to need this. And he sent me to to, uh, help fulfill your need and the need of all the people. So Joseph is then reunited with his entire family, including Jacob. Pharaoh... This is so, it, it just floors me the way that Pharaoh reacts. This foreign man, this slave, Pharaoh is pleased that he has his family coming to be with him. He gives them anything and everything they need for their journey. Um, he gives generously to them. He says, come and live here. I will give you the best land. So you can start over here and you can have a great life in my country. So, <clears throat> More or less, they lived together as a family in peace and prosperity in Egypt. So where did they come from? They came from infighting, hatred, the idea of murder, selling into slavery, lying to each other. And here they are living together in peace and prosperity. That's the picture of what God has done 
just for their family. That's one little picture in this story of what God is doing. I would say as a simple conclusion to the story, put it in a couple sentences, you could say that the one the brothers hated and sent away has become their salvation. And despite their sin, they are now in the care of the king with far more than they could ever deserve. Does that sound like a picture we, we know from Scripture? So, that's the story. It's a long one, and that's even pared down significantly. Um, I would encourage you to spend time in that story. It's just so rich. There's so much there uh, that you can glean if you take the time. Um, but let's talk about what Joseph must have felt at times, that God was perhaps hidden um, throughout this period. When God is silent for a period, is he ever really missing? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is he ever really missing? Any thoughts? <laughs> you better know by this point in the, in the class. Um, I'm sure that the tribes are kind of wondering about Joseph. I'm sure the other brothers are like, well, you know, what's he doing? Probably doing it. I mean, 10 years. They have to be. Think, thinking that God is missing they in that, you're saying? Thinking about why is there in mind because they know they're on a guilt trip. Sure. Well, and I think, and that, that's a good point. We do, just a moment, uh, we, we do uh, feel that God is missing a lot. Um, it's easy to, uh, to have those unfiltered feelings, not based on truth, but based on what we see around us uh, and, and what, what's happening in our circumstance, to feel that God is missing. Lily, what, what was your thought? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she said a great example in the book of Esther where God isn't even mentioned. Um, that's a great book, too. Read that, please. <laughs> It'll do you good. I think, yes. I think in times like that when God feels absent, but he's only silent, mm-hmm. that, that forces us to trust what he has said and, and rest in that more than in our feelings. Right? We, we, usually, yeah. we are so accustomed to allowing our feelings to dictate certain things to us. And I think we've got yes. to really differentiate between what is feeling and what our faith mm-hmm. in Scripture tells us is true. I can remember a time where I just felt like I was sitting on, the, the image in my mind was I'm sitting on this bed, this back bench in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And everybody's coming up and <laughs> God is hearing their case. Yeah. And Okay, it's, I kept feeling, is it my turn? Is it my turn? And everybody else was getting their, their kids yeah. heard and, and resolved and so forth. And I can remember for me it was uh, really coming to grips with accepting the fact that God loved me. Not just God loves us, mm-hmm. but that became a very personal thing for me and, and certain aspects of the faith as it's revealed in Scripture. Yeah. I just had to grasp that Yeah, hang on to that think okay god is not the judge i am not sitting in his courtroom uh-huh. he's you know okay but there's not a whole lot of visible activity going on at this point right but god is still with me and god loves me so you have not a lot of visible activity going on but you have stuff that you always hold on to those concrete things that you know are true um yes you know i think of uh, First Peter chapter one, where Peter's talking about trials come 
to reveal our faith if it's true faith in our own testament. Yeah. And I think what Marie was saying about the idea that God, I think every Christian some, at some time comes to a place where they're kind of crucified and they have nothing to stand on but the black words on the white paper mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah. And that reveals that there's true faith that they have. Yeah, it definitely, it, it, it reveals... Uh, <laughs> the character that's been built up, and uh, and that has to happen outside of the suffering, so that you have that foundation to stand on, um, and definitely very good. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, I want to go ahead and move on here so we can we can uh, get through today. Um, so the answer is, you know, to the question that when God is hidden, He's still there, He's still working. He may be hidden, but He's always completely in control and moving forward with his plan. Keller says, standing where we do, we can look back and ask whether God was really missing in action at all, all of those years when he seemed to be absent from Joseph's life. In chapter 42, we see that Joseph had cried out to his brothers. Uh, he had pleaded with them when he was in the cistern. No doubt he would also have pleaded with God in this moment. And I would assume over and over again when he was in slavery, uh, but his brothers didn't have compassion. And God did not deliver him from his brothers at this point when he asked. God did not deliver him from slavery when he, when he asked. Instead, Joseph's now in prison. And, and, you know, sitting there, this would certainly feel to Joseph like the silence of God, um, like maybe God is not uh, caring for me. So he likely prayed for years and years about his situation without an answer of deliverance. The interesting thing, I think, is that we as the reader get commentary all throughout the story um, of what God is doing for Joseph and how he's blessing him. First, when he's not killed by his brothers, that's a blessing. He has life. Then when he's given a high position as a servant, when he's in prison, he's given favor in the sight of the keeper and made in charge of all the prisoners. We read that the Lord was with Joseph and was blessing everything Joseph did and making it succeed. So we can already start to see God's narrative taking shape from the beginning. But do you think Joseph could feel God's goodness in these years? He may have at times. I hope he did at times. And perhaps that's where his trust continued. But certainly it would have been very difficult. Yes, Brenda. Um, in our women's covenant group, mm -hmm. And it's neat that we see that picture throughout this story. It's very much about sonship, about adoption. Um, 
And yeah, that's a that's a really neat picture. Thank you. Um, Sure. That's how you get to it. God does give you yes. lots of satisfying blessings in the midst of horrible times. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, we see that in that, you know, the specific example is that when he's has the opportunity to interpret a dream, he immediately trusts in God to help him do it. The trust is there. Um, now, could he have not had any specific blessings that he could see? It's possible. But obviously there are blessings in, in the way he's given position, the way that he's treated um, could have been much worse. Um, and, and I think you're right there. Certainly in our lives, uh, that's a big part of it. That is a huge part of it is that we have to have our eyes opened in the darkness and we see those pinpricks of light, the things that God is allowing in. Um, So, so I wonder, you know, how he felt. He, he's gone from being the favorite son of his father to becoming hated, sold in slavery, falsely accused of a crime, and thrown in prison. And I think it would be easy to feel that God is nowhere near, but clearly God is working in his life. Now, we could go through the story and count all the accidents and coincidences that happened for the story to work out just as it did. And there are lots of them. Um, you know, unless every one of these little events had happened just as they had, and so many of them were bad. They were terrible things. Unless all these things had happened, Joseph would have never been sent to Egypt. Uh, but, but think how things would have gone if he had not gone to Egypt. Huge numbers of people would have died because God would not have brought his plan of salvation uh, via his, his hunger program. <laughs> uh, Huge numbers of people would have died. His own family probably would have died of starvation. Going back even before that, spiritually and relationally, his family would have been a disaster. Joseph would have been corrupted by his pride, his brothers corrupted by their anger, and his father corrupted by his idolatry of his children. These things are very specific things we can look to and say, if God had not allowed all of these horrible things to happen, these good things also would not have happened. So, because it turned out as God wanted it, is it all right what the brothers did? This is in God's plan, right? So, eh, we could forgive them? It's okay? No, of course not. What they did was wrong. No one forced them to do it. Uh, and the shame and inner guilt crushed them. They needed a painful process, though, to help them re- uh, relive their evil behavior, renounce it, and get freedom and forgiveness. This is true in our lives a lot, that we have to go through significant pain to be able to understand who we really have become, to understand uh, what's really in our hearts, and to be able to allow ourselves even to be forgiven um, and, and freed from our sin. And, and this was all brought about through terrible suffering for Jacob, for Joseph, for his brothers, even for the the people uh, in the land. But how else could they have been saved both physically and spiritually? This is God's great plan that works out perfectly. In Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. That's that picture again. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's such a good picture of this story. There's significant discipline happening uh, through the suffering that all of these men and people endure. But ultimately, it creates the peaceful fruit of righteousness um, to those who have been trained by it. If, if their hearts had not been changed, if they had not been trained by this discipline, would they have experienced a peaceful fruit of righteousness? No. They would have been lost completely. I'm going to take a few moments. And uh, I, I really like this picture, so I want to share it. Um, the, the city I was trying to think of earlier, the, the remote place where um, Joseph was thrown in the empty cistern, is called, I think it's Dothan. I assume that's how to pronounce it. But in the city of Dothan, there's two pictures of God's timing and deliverance in, in Scripture. First is Joseph. We've seen already. Uh, he was about to be sold in slavery by his brothers. He cried out for deliverance. Instead, he was sold into Egypt. God appears to do nothing. And it took 20 years before we really see God's plan taking place. In Second Kings, we see the prophet Elisha. He was under siege in this same place by Syrian troops. He prayed that his eyes would be opened. What happened? God's, I mean, he saw chariots of fire. And the Assyrian army was blinded, and God delivered the city. So in this instance, God does a massive miracle immediately. <laughs> same place, same kind of crying out. God does things totally differently because he knows what is best. He knows what is right. We have limited understanding. We've talked about that a lot in this class, that if we were to base everything off of our limited understanding, we would be sorry for it. <laughs> if we did things the way that we want to, we would not be blessed by God. You know, here we're, we're not talking about a God who says no a few times. This is 20 years of relentlessly answering no. Not only no, but the idea of you're asking for deliverance. Instead, it's going to get worse. Sometimes God does give things the moment we ask, and sometimes he doesn't. We see this clearly in this example that I've just given. A third picture of God's timing is found in Job. With Joseph and Elisha, they both learned much about their suffering uh, and how God would act in it, even if it happened on different timetables. But with Job, he never really gets an answer to the question why. But no matter which of these circumstances we find ourselves in, we must know that God in his goodness is lovingly involved in our circumstance, even if we never get to see it in this life. Keller says the Joseph story tells us that very often God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, he gives us what we would ask for if we had known everything that he knows. I'm going to go ahead and close it there, but I would encourage you to take this last part uh, where I talk about the ultimate Joseph, because the parallels between Joseph and Jesus are significant. Um, the, between these stories, um, 
The idea that Jesus was rejected by his own. He was sold for silver coins, betrayed by his brothers. He prays that the cup would be taken from him. Um, Power was given to those who oppressed them by God himself. Um, They're both raised to the right hand, and they rule for the sake of the people, restoring, watching over, and protecting. It takes the entire Bible to really understand how this horrible thing that happens to Jesus is actually for the good of the world. And it takes a huge part of Genesis to see how this horrible thing that happens to Joseph is for not only his benefit, but for the benefit of the whole world. Um, Yes. Years. And that was the setup for the major <laughs> first Passover and the picture of redemption. Yep, absolutely. It's amazing. I don't even have words for it. It's, it's just amazing to look at these stories of the Old Testament and realize how intricately woven they are, <laughs> how, how God prepared it all beforehand, and he made it happen exactly as he wanted it to happen in the timing that he had, exactly how it would be right. Uh, exactly how it would be not understandable by people but would benefit them still Um, and I'm not going to hold you anymore Uh, so let's go ahead and pray and I'll let you go thanks Father God I thank you that your timing is right and I pray that somehow in our hearts we would understand that uh, whether uh, we have a a short period of suffering or if uh, We have something that we know will go on the rest of our lives with no real answer. God, help us to know your goodness, to know you intimately in in the midst of our hardest trials. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would be satisfied in you and that we would realize that you're the only satisfaction we need when we have questions. You are the answer, God. And uh, I pray that our church would be would be moved by our satisfaction in you um, to share that satisfaction with those around us, God, with a hurting world that needs it. Pray now that you would prepare our hearts for worship, uh, that you would soften them, that we would hear your word, that your word would be truth to us, that your word would be healing and restoration to us. Uh, and we praise you, God, for, for all the things that you give us, uh, namely yourself. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.